For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Well, last week, if you were here with us, we read perhaps the saddest story in the entire Bible. We read that evil had so permeated the human race that God decided that he needed to start over, that he needed to bring down a judgment on the whole world and to wipe out the human race, everyone except for one guy, Noah, and his family. And that's disturbing, and we talked about how to think about that last week. But now we see God made a promise to Noah. He said, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to keep you safe through this flood. And God kept his promise. And last week we saw Noah stepped off of the ark after the flood. And he's ready for a new beginning. Surely now that that humans have seen the goodness of God, the protectiveness of God, the destructiveness of God, of what happens when we turn away from God, surely they'll be able to stay on track moving forward, correct? Well, let's see. We saw these verses at the end of our study last week in Genesis chapter 8. It says, Then Noah built an altar to Yahweh, it's God, and there he sacrificed as burnt offerings the animals and birds that had been approved for that purpose. God had already at this point prescribed sacrifices that he wanted Noah to make. And it says, And Yahweh was pleased with the aroma of the sacrifice. And he said in his heart, of course, God doesn't have nostrils. And God doesn't have a heart. This is what Scripture calls anthropomorphic language. We've seen it already in Genesis. We're going to see more of this in the future. It's trying to talk about God in ways that we can understand. And so God says in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of the human race. And so this verse right here makes us ask the question, You know, Noah's sacrifice resonates with the heart of God. And the question is, why? Really, where does the hope for humanity lie? Where is our hope for the future in this new beginning? Is it in the goodness of man? No. God goes on to say, I'll never bring a judgment like this again, even though everything they think or imagine is bent toward evil from childhood. God is not confused about what humans are like. He knows deep down... There's something very wrong. And we saw where that came from earlier in our study in Genesis. When the first humans turned away from God and introduced the fall. And people turned away from God and and it broke the human race. It broke the world. Nothing's been the same ever since. No, God is not confused. God doesn't think man is finally good. No, the hope is in a sacrifice. And it's not this sacrifice that Noah just offered. It's a different sacrifice, one that God himself would offer where he will offer a true sacrifice to pay for our sin. And that will be through Jesus Christ, where God the Son will enter the human race and he will offer himself up as a sacrifice for sin. And now God is going to make a new covenant. We learned about covenants last last time, didn't we? Where God, he's a God who makes deals. He makes kind of like contracts where God promises to do something and sometimes he'll ask the other person to do something as well. And so he's going to make a covenant with Noah and his descendants. And he's going to give them new instructions for this new beginning. So a new beginning, he's got some new instructions that sort of build on the first ones that he made, that he gave to Adam and Eve. But there's some new things here as well. So Genesis 9, verse 1. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. That's the very first thing he said to Adam and Eve as well, isn't it? 
God wants him to make babies. He wants him to fill out this entire world that he's created. He says, the fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth and on all the birds of the sky, on every creature that moves along the ground and on all the fish in the sea. They are given into your hands. This is kind of a weird statement here. Is this, you know, it's, is this a sp- something specific to Noah? You know, um, what he's saying is there's going to be some sort of a separation between the animal world and humans, or at least the animal world and you, Noah. The animals are going to be afraid of you. Is what he's saying. Now, remember Noah, when he built his ark and he loaded the animals onto it, God's, he didn't have to go out and catch all the animals, we said last time. The animals came to him. You know, he's probably built some sort of, uh, you know, a bond with these different animals. And God says, now that we're getting off the ark, the animals are not going to be your friends anymore. So don't be really sad when Fido doesn't recognize you anymore, Noah. No, they... They've got to go out, and they've got to start their own lives without you now. <laughs> Surely before the flood, there was some sort of fear of humans that animals had, but you know, this is probably for the survival of humans as well, that uh, the fact that animals kind of clear out when humans move into an area, that's good for us as well. It probably keeps us safe. But uh, what he's saying is um, animals are going to be afraid of you, but you can hunt them. So he's, he's going to say, in fact, in the next verse... Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. So he says, you can eat meat, but you're going to have to catch it. <laughs> Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. Again, he's echoing the very first commands he gave to Adam and Eve. And back then, again, that was sort of confusing, but you know, he had said, you can eat all this stuff that you see growing here. And now he's saying, and you can eat meat too. Now, he hadn't explicitly forbidden meat before. But now he's explicitly saying you can eat it and how you can eat it. He says you must not eat meat that has lifeblood still in it. And so eating meat wasn't forbidden, but here he's, he's allowing it with restrictions on how to eat it. And I'm, I'm glad that God said that we can eat meat. You know, he's not saying you have to eat meat. There's different reasons why people are vegetarians. I understand that. But he's saying it's okay to eat the animals now, Okay. But when he says no meat that has lifeblood in it, what he's doing is he's setting them up for this, this whole sacrificial system that he's going to reveal later through Moses. He's, and, and these were teaching tools to teach them something about God, something that we'll see later when we get into these sacrificial regulations later in Scripture. But he says, for your lifeblood, Noah, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal... So if an animal animal kills a human, there's going to be penalties for that animal as well. We read about that later. From each human being, too, I'll demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. So sort of a famous verse there. If you've seen Boondock Saints, they repeat this verse over and over again. What is this saying here? Whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed. I mean, this could be a maxim, like if you kill somebody, they're going to try to get you back. But um, I think more what it's saying is premeditated murder is forbidden throughout Scripture. You know what this really takes us back to is when Cain kills Abel in Genesis chapter 4. You know, the world got so bad and so violent that God had had to start over. 
But what he's saying is now, when you have murder, like that of Cain killing Abel, you've got to do something about it, all right? It's not for personal revenge. You know, ultimately, this is because people are made in the image of God. You know, this is why it's so bad to kill a human and not that bad to kill a mosquito. In fact, it's good to kill a mosquito. And what's the difference between those two? Well, according to Scripture, humans are made in the image of God. And that's why it's so tragic when the life of a human is taken. We were never meant to die. And it was sin that introduced death into the world. We, we studied this. And so, you know, we also talked about how if we're not in the image of God under the materialistic worldview, what's really so bad about killing a human? If we're just a, a, a big bag of biomolecules, a collection of atoms... But no, there is something terrible about it, and that's because we're not just physical, we're spiritual beings. We're made in the image of God. And it's, it's natural laws like these that a lot of the laws of societies are based on. Well, and this is not for personal revenge, but it's to create a safe place to live. It's not God's like, yeah, you can get them back. No, what he's saying is, no, you've got you've to do something to keep murder from spreading, like apparently it did before. And this is, we read later in Scripture, this is why God came up with the idea of governments to deal with evil, try, try to create a society where things are safe, where people can function. Any government is typically better than no government, because in no government, some sort of, uh, there would be a battle for who's in power, or some sort of tyrant may rise to the surface. No, we're trying to create a safe place to live. And we've got to have that in order to function in a fallen, messed up world. Now, as far as capital punishment today in 21st century America, that's way beyond the scope of this teaching. I'm not going to try to get into that. You know, on the one hand, we do have God giving the green light to capital punishment here. But on the other hand, there are a lot of differences between 21st century America and, and our world and the world that Noah was living in with eight people. And, uh, you know, any argument for capital punishment had better do a lot deeper analysis of both the problems and the practice of it, and not just quote Genesis 9-6, okay? <laughs> That's what I think. He goes on, he says, but as for you, what you need to worry about is being fruitful and multiplying, increase in number, multiply on the earth and increase upon it. He's like, we got a world to fill out, go, make babies, go out. It's a great world I made, God says. And God says to Noah and his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you, a deal, and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that was with you, every living creature on earth. He says, this is the sign of the covenant I am making. This is how, this is the thing that you will see and you will remember this deal that I'm making. It's between you and me and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I've set my rainbow in the clouds. It will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. So there's our rainbow, right? So you've all seen rainbows, maybe even seen a double rainbow. <laughs> and God says, whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I'll remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Now surely there must have been rainbows before this time. But what God's doing is he's taking something that already existed and he's infusing it with new meaning, kind of like he's going to do later with circumcision in Genesis. 
And what God is doing is he's promising. It's, it's not, and God, when God says, I remember, it's not like he forgot and the rainbow reminds him. No, it's sort of an active commitment to this promise is what God is talking about here. And he says, I'm never going to destroy the world with a flood again. Now, later on, at the end of this world, he will bring fire to destroy the world, but it won't be with a flood. And it'll be a different sort of, of judgment. He's, you know, the flood, he kind of wiped things out and started over again. At the end of human history, his plan will be complete, his plan of salvation. And so then what he's going to start is something entirely new. So every time you see a rainbow, don't just think, oh, it's the water refracting through the, you know, the light refracting through the water and creating a prism. No, that's fine too. I mean, that's, I like science. But he, every time you see a rainbow, remember God's patience and mercy. We're like, oh, the rain stopped again. God is still keeping his promise. God is not giving us what we deserve. You know, imagine for Noah and his, his family, every time they heard thunder for the next year or two, that would have been sort of terrifying. It's like PTSD from that year, year plus in the ark with all the animals and each other. But God is saying, no, I'm, don't worry, I'm not going to do that again. Well, the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. <laughs> and by the way, Ham was the father of Canaan. The Canaanites become this very important group of peoples later on in the history of Israel. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth. So we've got this fresh start. They're going into the land. We've got Noah's family. What's going to happen? Well, Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. I mean, you're Noah. What do you do after the flood? Everything else is going to seem pretty anticlimactic. Here you've been through, you've lived a long time, a super intense, you've seen more intense things than perhaps anyone has ever seen. You've lived a hard life. And so now he takes up farming, and he plants a vineyard, and we read, when he drank some of its wine, he became drunk. So often the case. <laughs> and when he became drunk, he lay uncovered inside his tent. So often the case. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know what happened here. <laughs> the great Noah, the next thing we see from him, he's passed out naked and drunk in his tent. I don't know if he was like trying to, I don't know how he got naked. <laughs> like, was he trying to take his pants off and he just kind of fell? <laughs> I guess when you're wearing a robe, maybe it wouldn't be that hard to end up without a robe. <laughs> but there he is. The Bible, the Bible does not pull any punches. It it paints its saints in the realest light possible. This is not the sort of religion that man would make up. So he's not off to a real good start. It gets worse. Ham, the father of Canaan, does two things. He saw all his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth, they're like, oh, dad, 
They take a blanket and they kind of lie it across their shoulders, all right? And then they turn around backward and they walk back and they cover dad's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father naked. The same, they, they didn't want to do what Ham had done. So that's why they turned around and backed up. So what was Ham's sin? That's a question some people wonder. At, at face value, he saw his dad in a very pitiful state, and he mocked him. And he went and told all the other men in the world... What an idiot dad is. <laughs> now, some people try to, to read into this account. You know, it's true that in scriptures, there are times when to see someone's nakedness is a euphemism for to commit a sexual immorality with that person. All right. And that would put a very different light on this Ham Noah story, wouldn't it? If he committed a sexual act with his father. I don't, I don't think that's what happened. You know, um, while there are times that that is a euphemism, the context makes it clear that that's what's happening, that it, it is talking to, about a sexual act. If, if anything, here the context seems to say otherwise. You know, if they're trying to avoid seeing their father naked, then um, how would that be accomplished by turning around and backing in and laying a blanket over him? All right, that, that's not the opposite of what Ham did if Ham committed a sexual act. No, this is um, it, it's incredible disrespect for his, his father, who was in a bad spot, apparently at this time, and at least had made a, a bad mistake. You sort of get the sense there were other problems with Ham, maybe before this. But it says, when Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan. That's sort of weird. The lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. Canaan is, is the youngest son of Ham. Ham had other sons as well apparently does not apply to them. I'm not quite sure why this curse would apply to Canaan. Canaan reached reach negative consequences because of what his dad did. Well, I will say, I don't know if you're aware of this, historically this verse has been used by bigots to justify slavery. Because we're going to read the, table, the, the, the direction that the nations went in Genesis 10. A number of the descendants of Ham moved down into Africa. And so this verse has been used as, uh, you know, a curse of slavery on the descendants of Ham. It's not a curse on the descendants of Ham. It's a curse on Canaan, who never went to Africa, and who ends up um, battling with the Israelites for a while, his descendants, and then he ends up uh, fading into non-existence, his, the, the people that came from him. No, so this is, should not be used by, you know, it's been used by, just because the Bible is used by racist people to justify their agenda, uh, that's why we need to have good interpretation. This could be predictive prophecy. It could be just Noah predicting what's going to happen with Canaan. It could be something Noah saw in Ham's son Canaan if he was around by then. I don't know why. This, this is one of those strange things in Scripture. And yet we see this curse being pronounced on Canaan. But he also said, praise Yahweh, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory. So it's almost like he's, um, 
He's doling out his inheritance on his kids right now. He's passing out blessings. It says, may he live in the tents of Shem and may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. So probably is what it's saying is may Japheth live in the tents of Shem. It might be saying God is in the tents of Shem. And if that's the case, and you remember the promised Savior from Genesis chapter 3, what he's saying explicitly is that Savior is going to pass through the family line of Shem. And Shem becomes the ancestor of the Shemitic peoples, the, the, the Semitic peoples, which includes the Jewish nation, but others as well. It looks like, though, it's saying Japheth will dwell in the tents of Shem. Um, it's a little hard to tell what that's talking about, but once we get to the New Testament, perhaps it becomes a little clearer. You know, Japheth, will see his family line, they end up moving kind of north and northwest from the Middle East toward Europe. And then when we get to the book of Acts, we see God brings a Savior to the world through the Jewish people. And then we see he starts reaching Gentiles. He starts reaching people from Europe. And we see the descendants of Japheth being blessed by Shem, kind of dwelling in the tent of Shem, if you will. Maybe that's what it means. Maybe it's a prophecy fulfilled in the time of Christ. Well, after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. He, we don't know anything else about how Noah finished. Just that one drunken episode. I guess that should be a little warning to us, but it says Noah lived a total of 950 years and then he died. Which brings us to Genesis 10. It says this is an account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's sons, who themselves had sons after the flood. And then the rest of Genesis 10 is a big, long genealogy that lists 70 different nations. Now, back then, they were more excited about genealogies than we are today. You know, occasionally you'll meet somebody that's real excited about genealogies, and they're like, my family came over on the Mayflower. <laughs> like, well, happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> In Genesis, though, they're tracing genealogies because there was a promise that through one line of Eve's descendants, a Savior's going to come who's going to crush Satan. And so what they'll do is, they'll, is the rest of the Old Testament traces that line. Occasionally they'll trans an offshoot here and there, but they're really not worried about the rest of the nations. They're worried about this one and the predictions that a Savior will come through the Jewish people. And that promise was there from the very first pages of Scripture. And so I'm not going to read all of Genesis chapter 10, but I will show you a little map here. This is called the Table of Nations. It starts out by saying Japheth, his descendants. It lists about 14 of them. You can see the red area, that's like the Japheth era, general areas where the Japhethites spread. Some of these names on here, I guess that screen's a little small. You've got Magog, they show up in the end times. You've got Javan, which um, it, that, that's the Greeks. You've got um, the, um, the Madai, which becomes the Medes, and they kind of spread east. And so this is sort of the initial spread of these people groups, and then from there they would have spread on out into the rest of the world. You've also got Ham. Ham, Ham gets a lot more space. You can see the Hamites, that's the green area. They kind of move southwest, uh, kind of the southern tip of what is uh, modern-day Saudi Arabia. And um, <clears throat> the one branch of his Canaan, they move into the area that eventually God is going to give to Abraham. 
And so we see the extensive genealogy and descendants of Ham. There's also Shem. Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And Shem's, Shem's descendants are traced there. You can see a lot of them land in the uh, really modern-day Saudi Arabia and just a little bit east and north of there. <clears throat> These are the, the Semitic peoples. And so all in all, there's 70 here. And where at times it seems sort of random as to where people ended up. You ever wonder why you were born, when you were born, where you were born? Scripture says God is sovereign over that. The Apostle Paul later says, from one man, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. God decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. And so where you were born is right where God wanted you to be. It's right where he determined for the foundations of the world. And maybe part of that was so you could come to teachings like this tonight and sit under his word and get revelation from him. You ever think about that? Well, there's one guy who really stands out from the line of ham. And by the way, it has nothing to do with the pork product, ham. That's not why Jews don't eat pork, okay, because of the thing with ham. It's, it's unrelated completely. There's one guy, though, who the text spends some time on who's going to be relevant for our discussion of Genesis 11. And we'll pick that up in Genesis 10. I'm just going to read a couple verses from this genealogy list. It says, Cush was the father of Nimrod, the famous, the one, the only Nimrod. Who was Nimrod? He became a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before Yahweh. And that's why it said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before Yahweh. (laughs) You ever wonder where that saying came from? Now you know. I guess this was a saying maybe when the Genesis was written by Moses. I don't know. But check it out. Okay, so the word Nimrod literally means we shall rebel. That's his name. It must have been maybe a nickname he got later. He was known for killing things. That's one thing he's famous for, his hunting ability. People, animals, hard to say. He's also known for building an empire. As it says in the very next verse, the first centers of his kingdom were Babylon. By the way, Babylon means the gate of God. Uruk, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. Remember that name. We're going to come back to that. The land of Shinar. From that land, he went to Assyria, where he built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, and Kala. So Babylon and Assyria become very important nations later on in Old Testament history. Nineveh is a very important city that we'll see from later as well. Assyria ends up conquering Israel later on in the history of Israel. Babylon conquers Judah and carts them off into captivity. And so he, he founds this kingdom... He's building an empire. He's a rebel. Oh, also Rezin, which is between Nineveh and Kala, the great city. Nimrod seems to be the first of many rulers who try to dominate as many humans as possible. Sort of a proto-Hitler, a proto-Stalin, a Napoleon. You know, in, throughout the history of the world... 
One thing that people have really tried to do is to take over the world. This is a common theme of human history. You know, as far back as Alexander the Great, we see the Caesars of Rome, your Genghis Khan, you know, all the way up to Pinky in the Brain. <laughs> the plot to take over the world is a theme of human history. Trying to dominate as many humans as possible. What Scripture says is that as much as people might try... It's not until the end times that someone will succeed in taking over the world. And at this point in history, it wasn't time for that to happen yet. And so, God intervenes in Genesis chapter 11 to slow the spread of the cancer of human sin. This new beginning is not heading in the right direction. Genesis chapter 11. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. It doesn't say what that language was. But what it's saying is that from Noah, they continued to speak the same language as they spread out. It also doesn't look like they spread out that much, even though God told them to. We see Nimrod there trying to build an empire. And it says, as people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. Didn't I tell you that was going to be an important place name? Shinar is in the modern-day land of around Iraq. It's the ancient nation of Babylon is what would eventually grow up there. And they found a pretty nice spot, and they settled. And they said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly building materials. They don't have the stone that you have, for example, farther west in in Israel. And so they had to make something that they could build stuff with. And so they're going to make bricks. They use brick instead of stone and tar instead of mortar. So instead of a real sturdy stone and mortared brick building, they've got homemade bricks with kind of tar slathered between them to hold them together kind of pitiful building materials. And they said, come, come, let's build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. All right, now, are they trying to build like something they can climb all the way up to the sky? No, these, these towers that reach to the heavens, the word that reaches is not there. It's just a tower to the heavens. These were religious centers. These were, these were temples. These were places of, of worshiping of the gods that they would make up. In fact, these ziggurats have been found all over this area, all over modern Iraq. Ziggurats. You can see it's more of a pyramid than a tower. And in fact, this similar type of architecture has been found in Central America and other parts of the world. But they would build these ziggurats... And these were, there were no rooms on the inside. These were just places where they could go and they could worship the gods. You know, here's a shot of these stairs that they would walk up. Pretty significant. This one's been, this one is, was built around 2000 BC. It was restored in the 1980s actually by Saddam Hussein. <laughs> and um, then he went on to build a military base around it. He'd park his planes right next to it, not to protect the ziggurat, but to protect the planes. Because he thought that nations like the U.S. wouldn't try to bomb so close to this and destroy ancient history. 
So there's a military base around this. Uh, I guess it kind of worked. It's still standing, but it didn't stop. You know, the, during the Persian Gulf War is when he, when he did that. So they said, so we see these ziggurats, you know, the ones we're talking about here, you know, that ziggurats, that's 2000 BC. Some have been found built on, you know, where the, the remains at the bottom are from 5000 BC. This probably would have been even much older than that, what we're talking about here. It's hard to, again, it's hard to date things back this far back in history. But whatever, these ziggurats would have surely been related to these, these earlier towers, these early attempts by man to worship God in our own way. And so they said, come, let's build a city with a tower to the heavens so we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Isn't that what God told them to do? To spread across the face of the whole earth? Like, man, we better do something or we're going to end up spreading across the whole earth. We want to make a name for ourselves. Look what we're doing. Look at our progress. You can see the excitement with, with which they're talking about this. Their goal was to make a name for themselves. Their goal, well, really, there were a lot of things here in, in this first Babylon. They're practicing religion apart from God with their towers to the heavens. They're pursuing security and unity apart from God. They're like, what's going to happen if I'm out there all alone? Let's band together, me and you. We'll be tougher together. Maybe a guy like Nimrod, who's the, the one that started all this empire, we want to be like him. A mighty hunter known for our violence and aggression. Security and unity. They're trying to get a, a man-made security, a man-made unity. They're trying to make a name for themselves apart from God. Some of us here tonight are trying to make a name for ourselves, but it's apart from God. And finally, they're accumulating possessions apart from God. You know, these guys are not building, they're not building altars to God. They're building cities so they can be safe, so they can oppress other people, so they can be famous, so they can really be somebody. Well, it's no wonder that Babylon comes to represent the world system and will appear throughout the rest of Scripture. The world system is the system that ultimately God's enemy has set up. It's an alternative to living for Him. And the world system comes up with its own religion apart from God. It comes up with its own forms of security and unity apart from God. We find unity in the, in the strangest things. We find security in our money. We find security in our fame. We try to make a name for ourselves. We accumulate material possessions. And what God wants doesn't really matter. Because I'm doing something here. Something that's going to be awesome. Something that's worth devoting my whole life to. Most of the world lives for this world system. Trying to make a name for myself. Pursuing religious activities apart from God. Trying to get unity apart from God. Trying to get safety apart from God. Accumulating material possessions. And what God says is, that's not going to last. That's not going to work. That's not how you get security. That's not how you make a name for yourself. That's not how you get treasure that lasts. Jesus says, you need to learn how to store up treasure in heaven. 
where you can't lose it all in a heartbeat, at the very least, the day that you die. So it's no surprise Babylon comes to represent the world system in Scripture. We also read that at the end of the world, when one man has united the globe in false unity, when everyone's saying, peace and safety, we've done it. Look at it. The, the great triumph of man. God says it's all going to fall apart. It's a house of cards. And God will then step in and bring everything together under the rule of Christ. And he'll set up a kingdom that will never end. And he'll be a good ruler. The perfect, just, righteous ruler that Nimrod could never be. Well, Yahweh, it says, came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. Now, does that mean God couldn't see what was going on down there? No, it's, it's, it's ironic. You know, God, God can see everything. The irony here is these people, they're building this tower to try to reach the heavens. And God just comes down and shows up. All they had to do was ask. That's the way God works. And Yahweh said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. This is not God feeling insecure, thinking, oh, maybe the humans are going to win. No, this is God saying, unified mankind will be capable of unimaginable evil. And with the communications that we have in our day, with the technologies we have in our day, we can see the truth of this statement. A scientific discovery happens here, and it's immediately published all over the world for others to build upon it. Some of the most brilliant minds in the world working on ways that we can kill other people better. No, God says, we need, we need to put the brakes on this. And so he says, come, let's go down and confuse their language. They will not understand each other. So you have all the brightest minds, all the greatest minds of humanity working on this empire. And God's like, let's confuse the languages. Confusing the languages. How long did this take? It, it kind of sounds like this was something that happened pretty quickly. I don't know if it was like one day you show up for your work and you're like, hey, so how was your weekend? And the other guy's like, Oh, oui, oui. <laughs> Mon ami, bonjour, French toast. <laughs> and you're like, do you understand what this guy's talking about? And your other buddy's like, Lederhosen! <laughs> Broadwest! Kindergarten! So God confuses the languages. You know, this wouldn't have just happened to the builders of these cities. This would have happened to everybody. Confused all the languages. You know, he wouldn't have like, you know, split up a husband and wife or something like that or a family. These would have been maybe logical groupings already there. Families, I don't know. But it's the scattering of the languages then. That's what finally got humans to go ahead and drift apart from one another. So Yahweh scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building 
the city. And so they abandoned this project. And that's why it was called Babel. The word Babylon means gate of God. Babel means confusion. And so they're, they're like, we're building the gate to God. And God's like, no, you're just confused. That's what you are. Because at Babel, Yahweh confused the language of the whole world. And it was when he confused the language that he scattered them over the face of the whole earth. And so that's the order there. The languages are changed, and then they spread out. You know, intuition would think, well, people spread out, and then they started speaking different languages. Scripture says it is the opposite. You know, there might there were further dialects, I'm sure, developed as people spread out. But the initial scattering of the nations, it says, was because God intervened miraculously and changed the language. Now, is this story plausible? I'll again point you to Hugh Ross. This is my last week I can quote from this commentary, so I'm going to go ahead and do it. He had some pretty intriguing stuff on this scattering of the nations. Here's what he says in his book, Navigating Genesis 1 through 11. He says, Geographers note that virtually all Earth's continental landmass lies in climatic zones suitable for human habitation. Everything except basically Antarctica and the the northernmost parts of, you know, Russia and Canada. Moreover, with the exception of frozen Antarctica, the continents and major islands are nearly contiguous. They're almost touching one another. Like, like a little too far to swim, you know, or to get there in a canoe maybe would be pretty hard, but it's reachable. Yet certain physical barriers present a formidable challenge to people lacking modern transport vehicles. Yeah, it's a lot easier with a plane or a modern ship to get around. Indonesia is separated from mainland Asia by the Strait of Malacca. Australia from Indonesia by the Torres Strait. The English Channel flows between Britain and the rest of Europe. North and South America are cut off from Eurasia by the Bering Strait between Alaska and Russia. The Bering Strait, for instance, he says, constitutes an expanse of cold, treacherous sea between Alaska and Siberia. What he's going to point out at is that there was a time in the history of the world when it was easier to cross these gaps. He's going to give two examples. One is the Bering Strait. Even with modern ships, attempts to cross that body of water can be a risky venture. But in 1996, a geological and paleontological study discerned that a land bridge in that area actually joined North America and Asia between 40,000 and 11,000 years ago. Most of us have probably heard of the land bridge there. Well, despite, it says, during most of these 29,000 years, Temperatures remained too frigid to permit human migration across the land bridge. For most of this epoch, Siberia and Alaska were too, as heavily blanketed with ice as Greenland is today. The existence of these huge ice sheets explains why sea levels were so low. Sea was lower back then. For a brief time, however, just before the Bering Land Bridge became inundated by rising seas from the melting continental ice sheets... A warm, moist climate blanketed the Bering Bridge and significant portions of Alaska and Siberia. Insect assemblages and plant fossils indicate that the period between 14 and 11,000 years ago was especially favorable for human migration. Hmm. Relevant study by another research team. 
working in British Columbia, indicates that other land bridges opened and closed at about the same time as the Bering. So 14 to 11,000 years ago, there was a, a brief couple thousand year window where people could live at further northern climates, where they could actually make their way across that land bridge, and where they could move over into Canada. And then things got too cold, they had to move south again. They said that's not the only one of these, these um, land bridges that opened and closed during this time. He goes on to cite the Hecate Strait. Okay, so there's this, um, off the west coast of Canada, there's this island that's separated from, you know, 40 to 80 miles of a really rough, cold ocean. They said there's a the floor under that strait, though, relative to sea level. It's called the Queen Charlotte Islands, okay? The floor had risen by as much as 500 feet relative to sea level during this time. A bridge opened up to that island. About half of that, there were falling sea levels and a bulging of the undersea floor from the glaciers. And so the water drops, the, 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 the ocean floor rises, there's a bridge for a couple thousand years, and then it goes away again. They demonstrated a land bridge between the Canadian mainland and the Queen Charlotte's formed as early as 14,600 years ago and lasted for about 4,000 years. He says, everywhere in the world, sea levels shifted rapidly, first eliminating barriers and then widening them again, separating continents and large islands. The world became geographically accessible and then divided, keeping humans geographically separated. And so he goes on to talk about how God was the one who created the world the way it is. He knew it was going to do that. He knew when it was going to do that. And it may be that he lined that up with the scattering of the nations. For a brief time, they could move a little further, and then the door slammed shut behind them, and they were separated, keeping humans from getting back together sooner and doing the sort of collaboration on sin like you see there in the Tower of Babel. Well, let's just try to summarize what we've seen from these couple of chapters tonight. First of all, we've gone from eight people to all the nations covering the face of the earth. We've covered a lot of ground tonight. In fact, up to this point in Genesis, we've covered more ground than we're going to cover throughout the rest of the Bible. So it's moving pretty quickly. What we're going to see here in the next chapter, you've got all these nations and they're all divided. God's going to choose one guy, a guy named Abraham, and he's going to make him into a new nation, the Hebrew people. Check out what he says in Genesis 12. God says, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation and bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. Does that language look familiar? I will make your name great. Who are the guys who built the Tower of Babel? Their names aren't even listed. Abraham, though, he's a pretty famous guy. And this is the sort of thing that happens when God decides to make your name great. He gives you a greatness and a glory that you could never have on your own. And that's because it's ultimately a glory that points to him. God says, I'm going to bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. You know, the people in Babel, they were so worried about protecting themselves, and God says, look, why don't you trust me? Why can't you trust me for your security? God says, I'll protect you. Eternally, God says, not just in this life, but especially in the next. And he says, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. I'm going to make you great, not so you can oppress people like they tried to do at Babel, Babylon. No, I'm going to make you great 
so you can bless people. And so he picks one of those nations, one man to make a nation, to bless all the nations of the world. That's the line through whom the Christ would come. Well, we see Noah and his family got a fresh start, but our true colors showed themselves once again, didn't they? It wasn't just that we needed a fresh start. No, they got off that ark and went right back to the same sort of problems that plagued the pre-flood peoples. No, we need more than a fresh start. We need a deep internal change. We need a Savior. We need what God is doing in His plan of salvation, where He's going to give us a new heart, and He's going to completely transform us. And finally, when we turn to our New Testament, we see in Acts chapter 2, God does something very different from what He did at Babel. You know, in Babel, people came together under a false unity. They came together to oppress the other peoples. And at Babel, God confused their language so they had to spread out across the whole world. Well, the whole Old Testament goes by and God's creating a nation and scriptures and bringing the Messiah into the world. And then we see Jesus live a perfect life and die on the cross for our sins and then rise from the dead. And he tells his followers, go out to all the nations, go into the whole world and tell them about me and my forgiveness. But he says, but just wait a little longer because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. Don't do anything. You're just going to hurt yourself, okay? God sends his Spirit. And it says in Jerusalem that the believers there, they began telling people about Jesus and they got the supernatural ability to speak all kinds of different languages so that people could hear about Jesus in their own tongue. And we see there God saying, okay, go to all the nations. This has been my plan the whole time to pick one to be a blessing to all the nations. And so as a result, God's creating a real unity, a true unity in the church. And he says, when we get to heaven, there's going to be people from every race and tongue and tribe and nation there praising God. He's going to save people from all over the world. And it's all through Christ. And that's the message. Genesis 9, 10, 11. Yeah, God, it's, it's so good to know that you, you're the God who's really there. You're all-knowing. You're not surprised when humans mess up. You're not surprised when humans turn aside. And that knowledge hasn't hasn't caused you to reject us, Lord, but instead it's caused you to, to launch a plan to save us. So I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that you sent your son with the intention of saving people from every tongue and tribe and nation, Lord. And I, I pray if there's anybody here tonight who hasn't received that forgiveness, I pray that they would. I pray also for those of us who are living for the world, Lord. I pray you'd open our eyes, whether Christians or non-Christians, open our eyes to see how temporary it is that we could never make a name for ourselves in the ultimate sense, but instead that we would trust you for our security, for any recognition we might get, and that we'd put our lives in your hands, Lord, and be rewarded for that and lay up treasures in heaven like Jesus said. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.